Evidence is not to be found in what's happening in Rome or in Washington, although that too might be evidence. But the greatest evidence is in the lives of God's people. And I believe that today God is preparing a people by the message of the three angels to be ready for His return. It's a wonderful privilege to be a part of that work. Let's just bow our heads for an additional word of prayer. Father, today we are grateful to you for your goodness to us. We're grateful that here on this Sabbath morning we can come and and worship together and study your word together. And Lord, we want to be effective missionaries for you. We want to help meet the needs, the physical needs, the health needs the emotional needs, and yes, the spiritual needs of many who are longing and and lacking. And so today we just pray that you'll take us in these next few minutes, that you'll help us to put aside our preconceived ideas, that you'll help us to hear your voice speaking to our hearts, that we might indeed become more effective witnesses for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. As we see what is, as I see what is happening right here in Loma Linda, as I see what uh, you all are doing and working with the sanctuary project, the Messiah's mansion, the opportunity to, to gain access to hearts and minds and find those who are searching for a better understanding of the scriptures, I can't help but be, be excited. And I'm glad that, that you all are interested in having uh, training to help you be more effective witnesses. How to give more effective Bible studies. This afternoon, particularly, we're going to be looking at the nuts and bolts of how to give Bible studies. And I hope that you will be able to join us then. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, though, we find the, the command of Jesus. He says, um, he says in verse 8, You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be what? Witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus here tells his fledgling church, look, you're going to be witnesses. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you're going to be witnesses unto me. First of all, here in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and in Samaria, and, in, in, and eventually unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, when you stop and take this prophecy, if you will, prediction, commission, At face value, it seems quite preposterous. I mean, after all, if you look at what the condition of the disciples was at this time, if you look at the status of the early Christian church, what was the likelihood? Let's just remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about 12 men, 12 disciples, who consistently throughout their three and a half years with Christ have bickered and bantered about who was to be the greatest. We're talking about men who didn't know what they believed for sure. 
We're talking about men who were completely devastated when Christ died upon the cross. Their understanding of Bible prophecy was so darkened. In fact, we can look at a couple passages to see what kind of a witness they had hitherto given. Let's start with Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin reading with verse 13. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. You know the story. Jesus came unto the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Whom do men say that this, I the Son of Man am? Remember? And when they heard this question, they didn't know what to answer. And so there was sort of this mumbling and murmuring among them as they, they tried to come up with some sort of a, an answer to Jesus' question. Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, But whom say you that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the real question, isn't it? I mean, after all, they'd spent time with Christ. They had seen Him perform the miracles. And who would they say that He was? Finally, leave it to Peter, right? <laughs> Peter alone spoke up. Peter alone, bless his heart, I'm glad he did. Peter spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Oh, what a wonderful testimony Peter here gave, confessing aloud his belief in Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, Jesus commended him when he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. But let me tell you something. It's easy to be a witness in church. Peter here boldly tells Christ <laughs> that he believes in him as the Messiah. Is it quite so simple to tell someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? It's not quite so simple as it looks. Look on a few verses later, Matthew chapter 26, and let's see what happened. You remember, this is after Jesus made the prediction that all of you will be offended because of me tonight. And Peter insisted, No, Lord, though all men should deny you, yet will I not deny you. And Jesus said, Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me three times. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56, the Bible says, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. All of them. All twelve of them, or eleven of them, however you want to look at it. They all forsook him and fled, right? Not one stood with Jesus, not even Peter. Not even Peter who had boldly confessed to his face that he believed Jesus the Messiah. At this point, he wasn't quite so sure. He ran for his life. And then, a few verses later, we find the, the, the disgraceful account of his not only running and fleeing and trying to save himself, 
but his outright denying of his Lord. In verse 69 of Matthew chapter 26, Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou wast also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was come out into the porch, another maid saw him, and said unto him, them that were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he again denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, it's one thing to, for Peter to be able to confess Jesus in the presence of Jesus, but it only took a servant woman to intimidate him into denying his Lord. This, my friends, was the early Christian church. Now, in fact, if we look in John chapter 20, you'll find right after the crucifixion, you'll find another picture of the Christian church. And it's not much more encouraging in John chapter 20, I believe it is. And verse 19, this is after they have some evidence of Jesus being resurrected. It still hasn't dawned on them. They're still not confident. And it says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. You, you see the picture you see of the, of the early Christian church? They're locked into a room. The bolts are drawn. The shades are closed. And they're cowering in fear of the Jewish leaders. What is the likelihood, my friends, of these people being witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth? This was the situation the church was in. Now let's look and see what the culture was in which the church found itself. Let's look, first of all, at the culture there in Judea. The culture in uh, their own town of Jerusalem. Let's remember that the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus, hadn't they? They had even chosen Barabbas above Jesus. And they have said, His blood be on us and on our children. Rather unapologetically, they had crucified him for nothing other than envy and jealousy. None of the Sanhedrin at this point supported Christianity. Now, there had been two who quietly had figured in among the followers of Christ, hadn't they? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But they had come public in their belief and their support of the Christian faith at the crucifixion of Jesus, when they went to Pilate and they asked for the body of Jesus. And now they were excluded from the council. The entire body of powerful leaders of the country were opposed to Christianity. 
None of them were supporting this Christian movement. By the way, the, Christ, the Jewish leaders were also in collusion with the Romans. Now that Jesus had resurrected, you remember the Roman guards had, had stumbled into the city and found the, the high priest and the temple leaders and they had told them the story of the resurrection and, and they said, look, don't tell anybody. We'll pay you well. Say that you were asleep. And I don't know where those soldiers came from, but they weren't the brightest stars in the sky, were they? Because how can you say that the, the disciples stole the body away and at the same time say that you were asleep? How would you know it was the disciples? But no, the Jewish leaders said, don't worry about Pilate, we'll take care of him. The Jewish leaders are in working in collusion with the Roman government, aren't they? And their enemy is the Christian church. By the way, in Jerusalem at this time, the Jewish leaders controlled all the houses of worship. There was nowhere for the Christians to meet. They didn't have a single church. They didn't have a school. They didn't have a hospital. They didn't have anything. What's the likelihood that they're going to conquer the culture of Jerusalem? Now let's look at the broader culture of Rome. Rome ruled the world. Let's face it. That's not just a saying, it's a fact. With an iron grip, they ruled the world, in fact. And Rome was not only an impressive military force, it was not only a city empire, but Rome had developed to control the economies and the commerce of the world. The, the, the saying in English that we use says all roads lead to Rome. But in fact, it was true because the Romans built the roads and they built them leading out of Rome to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, all the way from the British Isles where they built hundreds of miles of roads, all the way into Asia, from northern Africa, all the way into northern Europe, 50,000 miles of roads Roman soldiers built. And they were good roads. And they changed the whole economic landscape of Europe. Agriculture was changed. Trades were changed. Manufacturing changed. Everything changed because not only with the roads, but with the, with the, with the maritime commerce system, the, the cultures and the commerce and the, the economies changed. Just to give you an illustration of how, how, how affluent Rome was and how modern their transportation system was, just inside the Aurelian Wall in Rome, near the old port where ships would have been unloaded into, in Rome, goods taken off of ships, there stands today um, a hill. We call it, in English, it would be called Pottery Mountain. Pottery Mountain used to be thought to just be a natural hill until they discovered that actually it is made up of fragments of shipping containers, 45 meters high and more than a kilometer around. This hill has thousands and millions of clay vessels which it is believed, according to some of the inscriptions, contained olive oil. They carried into the heart of Rome an estimated six 
billion liters of olive oil. Rome was an impressive economy. They operated in the trades and import and export in a similar way as we do today. Rome at this time was such an affluent society that it is estimated, it is estimated in the city of Rome there were as many stone statues as there were citizens. Now compare that to the early Christian church. Compare the strength of a military economic empire to the sad shape of the apostolic church. Yet Jesus said, ye shall be witnesses unto me. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and into the uttermost part of the earth. The main thought that I want you to remember this morning is that what changed in making the church effective was not the culture in which the church found itself, but the culture of the church itself. The culture surrounding the church in Jerusalem was as decidedly contrary to the growth of the gospel as any that could be found in history. The culture in the Roman Empire was as decidedly against the spread of the Christian religion as at any time, any culture in earth's history. And yet, we will see that Christianity not only survived, but it thrived and it grew and it prospered, and it completed its commission within that very culture, within those very cultures. Let's look in Acts chapter 4. Let's notice what took place. Oh, my friends, the Jewish culture in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin and the rabbis and the Pharisees and the high priest, that's not where the change took place. The change took place in the disciples' heart. That's what changed. Let's begin in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6. Acts chapter 4 and verse 6. And Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Here you have a very impressive group of dignitaries. The leaders, the power-wielding leaders of the Jewish nation. And when they had set them in their midst, who did they set in their midst? These humble, simple fishermen, uneducated, easily intimidated, right? When they had set them in their midst, verse 7, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Talking about the healing of a fellow in the temple. And Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice this is not just Peter answering now. Peter before had at times given right answers, hadn't he? But not under pressure. Not when intimidated. All it took was a servant woman in the darkness of the courtyard to scare Peter into denying his Lord. And yet now, Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, sitting in the presence of the most powerful men of his country, answers, and said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, 
If this, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. My friends, what was the change that took place? Was it in the leaders of Jerusalem, or was it in the lives of the apostles? It was in the lives of the apostles. Oh, the culture hadn't become more friendly, but they had become more bold. They were now filled with the Holy Ghost and they were willing to speak the truth boldly. It says in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Oh, my friends, am I a witness? Am I a witness? The story continues. It says in verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Intimidation would not work. You see, threats would not work. We are witnesses. And as a witness, we have to tell what we've experienced. We have to tell what we've seen and heard. It's our own experience. We have to share it. That was the message of the early church. Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. Something has happened to these guys. They're different people. The Holy Spirit has come upon them, right? And they are witnesses. And in fact, of course, they found out when they went to try to interview their captives, they found out that the cell was empty. And presently, the message came from the temple courtyard that the men who you put in prison last night you're looking for are out there preaching again. And so they brought them in and they said in verse um, 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest said unto them, or asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. I'm telling you, my friends, a change took place in the Christian church. They weren't the same men. In fact, when they began to be persecuted themselves, after the stoning of Stephen, Saul was consenting to their death. And we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 that they, uh, they began to wage a war, a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
It says, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So who was scattered? The Christians, except the apostles, right? So maybe it was just the apostles who had become so bold and were doing all this preaching? No, in fact... We find in verse 4, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, what? Preaching the word. The apostles were still back in Jerusalem. They were bold, right? Something had happened to them. But something happened to the church membership at large too, didn't it? Everywhere they went, they were preaching the word. They were talking about Jesus. And they were showing that according to the Old Testament, He is the Messiah. He is the one that is going, that has come to die for our sins, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that's going to come again. And they went everywhere preaching the Word. In fact, not only did the twelve disciples preach and, and the, the converts, but a, a man named Saul, who was consenting to his death here in, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, he was converted when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, Right? And he began preaching as well. One of the greatest lights, the young, bright minds of the Jewish culture, accepted the doctrine of Jesus and began preaching it fearless of its consequences. It didn't matter to him that he lost worldly position, respect, prestige. It's not what he was interested in. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, and verse 16. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. We find why Paul was so bold in preaching the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Let's read verse 15 also. Oh, let's start with verse 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It didn't matter, my friends. It didn't matter to Paul that the Jesus whom he was preaching had died a criminal's death. It didn't matter that he was holding up as a hero someone who in modern lingo had died in the electric chair. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. In the what? The power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of Christ fulfilled, revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. It is the power of God unto salvation. Why am I not ashamed? Because the power, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change men and women's lives. I've seen it and I've experienced. And even though Paul was not a disciple who lived, walked, slept and ate with Jesus for those three and a half years, he was also a witness, wasn't he? Because he had himself met Jesus on the Damascus Road and experienced his life-changing power. And so the Christian church spread against all odds. It spread. There's no human explanation, my friends. 
how a group like these 12 men and the 70 followers could have overwhelmed the powerful leaders of Jerusalem. There's no explanation how in one generation they were successful in taking the gospel news to every creature under heaven. Read about it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul says it himself. He said the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven in one generation. My friends, they did it without television. They did it without radio. They did it without printing presses. They had no houses of worship to begin with. They had nothing. But they were witnesses. And they had the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that when Paul went to Rome, it wasn't as he had always dreamed of going? He says here in Romans chapter 1, I'm ready to preach the gospel in Rome. And Paul wanted to go to Rome as a missionary. He would have, I'm sure, done just as he did in every other city. He would have gone to the synagogue first and he would have reasoned with the Jewish leaders and tried to win them over to his side. And finally, when Jews from other cities would have caught up with him, he would have had to go out into the people and teach them in the streets and somehow start a little school like the school of Tyrannius. Or, well, you know, he would teach them somehow and there would be a Christian church established and growing and thriving. But instead, Paul enters the city of Rome as a prisoner. Now, get this picture in your minds. You're talking about a culture. A culture with very distinct caste systems. Where do you think prisoners fit on that scale? Close to the bottom. And Paul's coming into the city of Rome. There are those marble statues. There is that bustling river port. There are the huge palaces. Here is the Roman forum with the educated PhDs of the day debating and discussing, discussing and lecturing. <laughs> Excuse me. Here they are. And Paul enters the city of Rome as a prisoner. What are the odds? What are the odds that Christianity will conquer Rome? And yet, my friends, as Paul began sharing the principles of the gospel of Christ, the power of the gospel worked in Rome too. And people's lives were changed. Really changed. Not just professions, but people became new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old things were done away with. All things became new. Habits were overcome. Victories gained. And it may have just been in the humble classes at first, but before long, within a space of just a few short years, there were converts to Christianity all over the city of Rome, even working in Nero's household. And the, the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ though it had not the worldly prestige or the recognition, began infiltrating and changing the very culture of the Roman Empire. All around the Roman Empire, churches were springing up, lights in a dark world, testifying of the power of Jesus. They were going as missionaries. They were going as converts, sharing the good news with other people. And it became such a movement that even during the time that Paul was there in Rome, the movement of Christianity came to the attention of Nero. 
And it so threatened paganism. Get this. It so threatened paganism that he wanted to destroy it. And so he blamed upon the Christians the burning of Rome. Paul being their visible leader, his life was taken. But my friends, that couldn't stop Christianity. Christianity continued to grow. And my friends, it is one of the most astounding facts in history, but I believe it to be true, that Christianity eventually, true Christianity, eventually became more powerful than the very culture of Rome itself. Until the point in the early 4th century, the devil had to change his tactics. If you can't beat them, join them. And Rome became a Christian empire. Now we might decry the so-called conversion of Constantine. We might make fun of his baptizing of the Roman armies by marching them through the Tiber River. But don't miss the significance of what has happened. Christianity has conquered Rome. What are the odds? What are the odds? Oh, my friends, today we are faced with a challenge. We are faced with the most noble challenge that could confront any group of people, and that is to take the gospel of the kingdom of every creature in this generation. And I must confess this morning that we are faced with this challenge against great odds. Everywhere I go, I hear the same thing. It doesn't work here. We can't do it here. Our culture isn't conducive to evangelism. I just want to cry and say, please, read your Bibles. The culture of Jerusalem was not conducive to evangelism. The culture of Rome was not conducive to evangelism. But the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than any culture on earth. And if the apostles, with what they didn't have, could complete their task of taking the gospel to the world in their generation, then by the same power of the Holy Spirit, we can too by God's grace and through His power. Christianity is not a dead faith. We do not serve a dead God. It still has all the power that it did in the days of Peter and Paul. So I want to ask you the question this morning, do we really believe? How much do we believe? Are we witnesses? In other words, have we experienced it ourselves? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 in verses 19 and 20, or actually verses 18 and 19, we'll just read those for the sake of time. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 and 19. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, how much? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That means, my friends, greater power than exists in any earthly culture or system or government or religion. All power 
is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Based upon that fact, go and tell. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. One of the, one of these, uh, let's look back, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, our last verse this morning. Matthew 24 and verse 14. One of the last characteristics in Matthew 24 that would be, a, that would be fulfilled both before the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. Matthew 24 and verse 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then, what? Shall the end come. I used to think of this as sort of uh, the same as the gospel commission. We're supposed to go, and then the end will come. Now I see it more as a promise. It will be preached, my friends. It's going to happen. Do you believe that? Do you believe the truth? Do you believe that the truth is going to try? Do you believe that the end of the story has already been written, that, that the devil's already defeated foe and Jesus is going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords? The, the, this verse tells us, my friends, that the taking of the gospel to the world is not a mere probability or a possibility. It is a certainty. The end of sin is going to come. Jesus is going to reign. The truth is going to triumph. In the book of Acts of the Apostles, page 601, one of my favorite quotations, says this, Truth, passing by those who despise and reject it, will triumph. Although at times apparently retarded, its progress has never been checked. When the message of God meets with opposition, He gives it additional force that it may exert greater influence. Endowed with divine energy, it will cut its way through the strongest barriers and triumph over every obstacle. Hallelujah. The truth, my friends, is going to triumph. I want to be among those who triumph with it. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we see how men and women became witnesses when they themselves personally experienced the power of the gospel to change their hearts and lives. And Lord, I just want to pray that this morning you would make us witnesses as well. May we truly believe that the truth is going to triumph. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ as Peter and Paul. But may we tell others the great news of what we have seen and heard. And Lord, when the truth eventually triumphs over every evil and over every falsehood, may each one here be among those who triumph with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.